The next matter, number 221591 and number 221872, the Board of Trustees versus ILA Local 1740 AFL-CIO. If counsel for the appellant could please introduce himself on the record to begin. May it please the court. Uh, my name is Carlos Paula. I'm the attorney for uh, Local 1740, ILA Local 1740. Um, if I may uh, address the court. Yes, would you like any time for rebuttal? Yes, please. Uh, two minutes, if I may. Thank you. Thank you. Your Honors, um, this is a case where the there was a motion for summary judgment uh, that was granted by mistake in view of the multiple uh, genuine issues of material fact that arise from the record of this case. Uh, the court based its decision essentially on two points. Number one, uh, a mistaken interpretation of the provisions of the merger agreement, uh, despite the language of the same, that it's, it's clearly ambiguous and vague. For example, the language in the merger agreement concerning the funds, the pension fund, the welfare fund says, any agreements of the locals to provide welfare and pension benefits, and it's a quote, shall remain unaltered and shall survive the merger. There is abundance of evidence and testimonial evidence on the record of this case from witnesses who participated in the negotiation of that merger agreement and uh, who testify that at no point in time the intention of the parties was to merge the funds, the pension fund or the welfare funds. In fact, to this date, that has never happened. The, when we look at, for example, the appendix pages uh, 1542 to 1543, you can see the statement of Carlos Sanchez, the president of the local 1740, specifically saying, and I'm quoting, local 1740 was willing to participate in a merger of the locals for the sole purpose of providing job assignments to those members in good standing of local 1575 that were without, a, without job assignments after Horizon Lines closed its operation in Puerto Rico. Local 1740's intention of helping those members never included assuming pension liabilities of local 1575. Beyond that, when you read in, on the record of the, of the case, you have statements from the president of local 1575 specifically saying that so the, that, so that the, the merger thrust, did not occur. Yes. So the thrust of your argument, and I'm going by what you're starting out with, is not so much that a merger didn't take place, but that the liability portion of the responsibilities was not merged. Well, Your Honor, uh, the truth is that we, it's both arguments. First, the language in the merger agreement provided that the, some things needed to happen after the signature of the merger, turning over their assets, uh, uh, delivering the charter, uh, uh, merging the, the employees list, and not only but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that the merger didn't occur. It may may mean that there was a breach by one of the parties in not fulfilling its responsibilities under the agreement, but it doesn't mean a merger didn't occur unless it was a condition preceding. Exactly. And the court concluded, the district court concluded that there was no such condition in the merger agreement. Uh, we understand it's a misreading of the language because uh it clearly states, for example, the, the 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 merger agreement in three occasions mentioned that the the ILA had to approve the merger in three occasions three different paragraphs and if that was not the case if there was a merger how 
how can we explain that the, I mean, that agreement was signed by four locals. And the district court is basically concluding that the only one that merged that day on August 1st, 2015, the effective day of the merge was this one, local 1575. The other three locals, local unions did not merge because local 1902 merged later and local 1901 merged more than a year later. And there's a case, a federal case that is cited at page 19 of our brief. Page 19 citing the case decided by this court when it effectively merged 1901. So the district court is saying because exclusively based on the language of the agreement and the alter ego doctrine that is discussed in detail and all the criteria for the applicability of the alter ego doctrine discussed starting on page 40 of our brief. Counsel, may I ask, I'm looking at, I'm not going to take the time to quote it, but I'm looking at provisions of the merger agreement, which one, transfer of assets to local 1740, surrender of charter to ILA, merging of membership lists. I do not, with respect to those three, I do not see any language in there that would suggest that what is described there has got to happen in order for the merger to be final, which is basically the view that the district court took. I just don't see any language that makes this, these sort of like condition precedents to the merger. Where is the language that would support the contention that these were somehow conditions of the merger? In paragraph four of the merger agreement. The headings are transfer of assets to local 1740, surrender of charter to ILA, merging of membership lists. I just, all I'm asking is can you point me to any language in there that supports your argument that what's described there is a condition of the merger? I just don't see any language. Your Honor, the truth is that the language is not as clear cut as you're making the reference. It's not as clear, but it is implied in the agreement's provision that those things need to happen because just by signing the merger, one of the conclusions of the district court is that the ILA had the authority to merge the locals. Well, the ILA did not have the authority because it had to convince the locals and they had to agree and consent and sign this merger agreement and the ILA's signature is not there. So it means that the locals had to reach the agreement and some things need to happen afterwards and then it had to be, the merger had to be approved by the ILA. And that's very clear in paragraphs between 4 to 10 and 4 to 8 and then 10 to 11 of the merger agreement. But I agree with you, the merger agreement doesn't state it so clearly and that's one of the reasons why it's ambiguous and you have to go and examine the intention of the parties and then the testimony of all these witnesses saying the merger really didn't occur between these two entities, all of them say it didn't happen. I mean, we never merged the funds, we never merged the bank accounts, we didn't turn over any assets. They're claiming that they didn't have any assets, they did have a car. Counsel, so with respect to the approval of the international, the district court as I understand, that one troubled the district court a bit. But I understand the district court to have concluded, looking at the way in which local 1901 and 1902, they carried out their requirements under the merger, even in the absence 
of the approval of the ILA. So the court concluded, well, if parties to this agreement carried out their obligations, even in the absence of the approval of the ILA, this document cannot be read to require that approval as a precondition of the merger taking effect. What's wrong with the, I think that's what the district court said. What's wrong with that? Yes, what's wrong is that there is no evidence on the record supporting that, supporting that the other locals did not require the approval of the ILA. After the merger was signed, things happened, all these conditions, the other locals met those conditions, one of them after litigation, and that eventually happened. But if we look at the police brief, we will not find any reference to any testimony or to any document proving otherwise that they did not comply with the requirements or conditions of the merger agreement. Because just by signing, if that was the case, that just by signing the merger agreement, we take that as good, that just signing the merger agreement and it was effective, how can we explain that at no time, I mean, the local 1740, which was the largest of the local unions, would have to immediately provide welfare benefits, the health coverage, everything, all the benefits to all the members of 1575. That never happened. Only 200 out of 706 members of the 1575 obtained employment working with another company, Luis Ayala Colon, at the ports. So because they began to work for this company, it's a closed union shop, so they have to become members of the union, and then they started paying dues and everything. But it never happened that local 1740 started providing welfare or pension benefits because the merger never happened. And all the witnesses, all we're saying is we cannot rely only on the merger agreement, number one, because it has vague and ambiguous language, and it says that the funds would remain unaltered and shall survive the merger for someone who is not a lawyer. These presidents and members of the union, you know, the lawyers prepare this agreement, they come to the table, and they ask questions. They say, no, no, the funds will remain unaltered. And they speak about it, and it never happened that the funds merged, that bank accounts merged, that they granted the health insurance cards for them to receive coverage. None of that happened in this case. So in our view, it's completely unfounded to conclude that the merger happened, even if the language in the merger agreement is not so clear as, Your Honor, you were asking. It's true. It's not so clear. But that's one of the reasons why you have to go to the intention of the parties. And then when you look at all the testimony of all the witnesses, it speaks loudly about the fact that the merger did not happen, and even if it happened, it did not include merging the pension funds. That's very clear in all the testimony. But the district court disregarded those testimonies, which is part of the record, and that's why we understand that, you know, summary judgment was a mistake. Are you saying that 1901 and 1902 did not merge with 1740? Yes, eventually, not on the day that the district court said that happened. Should we look at it as not merging on the date, or it simply not being completely effectuated until a later date? Saying that the court ruling that the merger agreement became effective on August 1, 2015, just on the date that the agreement says, that's not true. It did not become effective on such a date because 
if that were the case, the other local unions would have been merged and everything would have happened on that date. And they did not really uh, merge until later. And there's a case from this court confirming as to 1901. It was in November 2016, more than a year later. So the court conclusion is mistaken. And those are the facts, and the record is full of that. I mean, of the evidence showing that the merger did not occur, occur on the effective date mentioned in this ambiguous and vague agreement. And that's why we understand the intention of the parties needs to be examined by the court uh, before making a decision. And that can not only say, oh, the merger agreement doesn't require a condition like you're mentioning. It does require, it's implied there. When you look at the words are there, the language is not the best one. But then you look at the intention of the parties. And the parties are saying we didn't merge. Both the president of the 1575 said that they didn't merge. The president of local in their depositions on the road, they both said, even the president of 1575 said, the money of, of local 1740 is their money and our money is not. They're even running two funds. But counsel, then the, I mean, the district court was fully aware of those depositions. District court read them. Well, I know it's your position that in light of those depositions, there was a, there are genuine issues of material fact as to whether this merger took place, and so the district court could not do what it did. But the district court understood this with summary judgment and basically said, okay, I've got these written agreements. The language seems plain to me. I've got this testimony to suggest otherwise. The court said, well, no reasonable jury could credit that testimony over the plain terms of the agreement. That The district court was in entitled to do that i know you don't you don't your point seems to be that summary judgment precluded the district court from doing that that's not accurate the district court could make that judgment could it not i know you don't agree with it well your honor all i'm saying is that a district court cannot ignore or disregard several testimonies on the road of key witnesses who negotiated the agreement who participated in there in everything the district court cannot disregard and say, I am, I'm, not, I'm only going to look at the merger agreement and saying that it's unambiguous when it is not. It is clearly ambiguous and big, the language there, and then completely disregard. I mean, of course, the deposition transcripts are part of the record, sure. but our position is that, that the court misinterpreted those testimonies and disregarded them and abused its discretion in disregarding those testimonies because it, they create genuine issues of fact, and, and it's really unfair to, to dismiss this case, I mean, and, and grant the summary judgment in favor of the police in view of all the, I mean, the, the vast, uh, uh, the abundant uh, evidence here showing genuine issues of fact. I mean, when we look at, uh, if, if the court looks at our brief, I, I, you know, I was, while I was reading it, there's a list of genuine issues of fact, and then I continue to read it. There are genuine issues all throughout the entire brief, so many genuine issues of fact, of material things. I have a list here. I mean, I don't, do I still have time? You're over mm -hmm. your time. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'll uh, I'll ask any questions if you have at my rebuttal time. Rebuttal time. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. At this time, would counsel for the appellee please uh, introduce herself on the record to begin? May it please the court, Clarissa Kong for. Board of Trustees of the ILA PRSSA Pension Fund. I'd like to start with a bedrock principle. A legal principle before this court is an argument that was not raised in the district court is waived um, and cannot be argued for the first time before this court. Uh, 
1740 moved for summary judgment, as well as my client, the Board of Trustees, on cross motions for summary judgment, Local 1740 argued that there were no genuine issues of material fact before the court. Yet, before this court, on appeal, 1740 is arguing that there are a plethora of genuine issues of material fact. That is directly contradictory from its argument before the district court. The district court correctly granted summary judgment in favor of the Board of Trustees. This is a withdrawal liability case, and there is no question about the fact that the pension fund is separate from any pension fund or other kind of employee benefit fund of 1740. What's at issue today is the merger, not of benefit plan, but the merger of Local 1575, 1901, 1902, and 1740. The district court correctly granted summary judgment on two independent grounds. First, that the merger agreement was effective in that 1575 merged with 1740. The second ground was that 1740... The issue of the pension plan sort of automatically goes away if we determine that there was a merger, because it would necessarily follow that if there was a merger, the pension plan and its liabilities would be merged into the new entity automatically. Yes, Your Honor. The merger that is at issue here is the merger of local... The entities. The entities, the local unions. We're not talking about any kind of a merger of benefit plans. My opposing counsel on the other side had mentioned the paragraph in the merger agreement that, this is paragraph 9, that talks about the obligations of the locals with regard to benefit plans and that those remain unaltered. That is correct that they are unaltered, but in this case, 1740 merged with 1575, and therefore, by operation of the merger agreement, assumed all of the liabilities of 1575 to the pension fund, including withdrawal liability to the pension fund. The district court also, in reviewing the record before the court, correctly cited District of Puerto Rico Local Rule 56E, which is the anti-ferret rule. Under that rule, certain facts that were uncontroverted by Local 1740 were deemed to be admitted, and the district court, in its order on the cross motions for summary judgment, appropriately went through the facts that were deemed uncontroverted and therefore admitted, included in the materials before the court on cross motions were 
the depositions, the statements of individuals that opposing counsel for 1740 has mentioned in today's argument. There were no preconditions in the merger agreement and the, for the fact of a merger. The district court correctly looked to contract principles in ruling that where the merger agreement is clear, extrinsic evidence is not allowed. And the court went through the arguments raised by 1740 to contest the fact that the merger had occurred and went through the agreement and found under the clear terms, there were no preconditions for the merger with regard to surrender of the charter, turnover of assets, and the merger of any kind of membership list. As Judge Lippes correctly pointed out, the court did find that there was possible ambiguity with regard to approval of the merger. On that point, I'd like to point out. Is there a contradictory decision wherein the district court found that the merger didn't occur until a later date with respect to 1901? No, Your Honor. I don't believe there was a finding as to the date when 1901 and 1902 merged. That, I believe, is not part of the district court's ruling. The district court did point to the fact that on the issue of approval, that the court could look to extrinsic evidence. And one of the points of extrinsic evidence is the fact that locals 1901 and 1902 merged as a result of this merger agreement. So I don't think that there's an issue on a delay or timing with regard to 1901 and 1902. It is undisputed on the record. So the date of the merger was not an issue in any litigation involving either of the other locals? There was litigation in the district court and at the First Circuit level as to 1901. And that case is cited in our brief as well as our opposing brief. But was the merger date an issue in that case? I don't believe that it was, Your Honor. But it was after litigation, the assets of 1901 were turned over. You know, the four locals who signed the merger agreement agreed that effective August 1, 2015, the locals would merge. And that is the operative date for the mergers. One point that I'd also like to raise is that the merger agreement did not occur in a vacuum on this issue of approval and who had to approve and whether sending the agreement to the ILA was the method of approval. The district court had noted that it was ambiguous with regard to the merger agreement. But when you look at the context, including the extrinsic evidence that the district court cited in its order, the international orchestrated 
this merger from day one. Horizon Lines was the major employer who employed local 1575 members. When it exited the port of San Juan, 1575 members had no work. And there were disputes, territorial disputes over who um, of, of the dock workers would be working at the, the ports at which Horizon Lines was um, previously operating out of. The International appointed a committee of two international officers. They were charged with resolving the labor dispute and they concluded that a merger needed to happen. They um, put together a work sharing agreement and that was entered into by the four locals in March of 2015. That then was subsequently um, replaced by the merger agreement, which was signed in July and effective August 2015. So the international was very well informed that a merger needed to happen. It was their committee's conclusion that it needed to happen. The merger agreement was prepared at the, at the international's behest. So, Council, isn't, isn't it a fact that the international is sort of on the other side of this issue? I mean, they seem to be supportive of the position of 1740 that they do not have these financial obligations. I, mean, I understand the, the board is an independent entity with its own fiduciary obligations, but the, am I correct that the ILA is supportive of the position of Local 1740 here? Yes, Your Honor, uh, that is correct currently. Um, but if you look at the record before the court, including documentary evidence, both 1740 and the International celebrated the merger after it was signed in July of 2015. There were letters sent, memos sent, um, two members of the four locals uh, um, celebrating the fact that there was a merger, stating that there was a merger effective August 1st, 2015, and that Local 1740 would be the sole local operating and representing members of the International in the Port of San Juan. Did, did the International prepare the merger agreement? Your Honor, I believe that's correct. Uh, their lawyers um, prepared the merger agreement. The International did want this merger to take place because there was a labor dispute between the four locals and you had members of Local 1575 out of work. And the merger was meant to solve that issue. But at the point when the International um, understood clearly that the Board of Trustees would not um, give up and not, you know, that they w wanted to pursue the withdrawal liability, that's when the International found uh, an argument to make that there were preconditions to the merger agreement that were never in the document. Under the Puerto Rico Code, if there are contract ambiguities, are they construed against the drafter? I believe that is a contract principle. I, I do not know the code citation, Your Honor. 
but you think that is part of the code? I don't know for sure, but it is a principle that generally tends to be true with regard to contract interpretation. It's also undisputed that Local 1740 substantially increased its membership after the merger. When you look at the government filings, the form LM2s with regard to Local 1740 in 2014, before the merger and after, there was a significant increase in the assets as well as the membership of 1740. 1740 was also distributing copies of the merger agreement to employers at the Port of San Juan in order to tell them that all of the dues that would be paid on behalf of former 1575 workers needed to be paid to 1740. This is a situation where 1740 accepted all the financial benefits of a merger, yet now denies that it has any withdrawal liability to the pension fund. Well, that's what's, and maybe opposing counsel can comment on this, but that's what's sort of very troubling about this whole scenario. I mean, it's undisputed that Horizon leaves the members of 1575, suddenly don't have an employer. There's a dispute about whether they can claim employment rights with respect to other docs. The ILA comes in and tries to work out an agreement that will be to everybody's benefit, and they do that. And then people do get jobs that they did not otherwise have. Everybody seems to be happy with that work-sharing agreement. But then it becomes apparent that there are some financial burdens that go with this new arrangement, and then there's an attempt to walk away from it. And that's what's very troubling. What seemed to be a good solution for the benefit of the workers, suddenly there's a desire to walk away from it. I mean, I gather that's sort of your perspective on what's going on here. Is that right? Yes, Your Honor, it is. And the Board of Trustees has a fiduciary duty under ERISA to operate the pension fund for the benefit of the participants in the fund, but also to conserve the assets of the fund and operate the, administer the pension fund in a way that conserves assets. The Board simply has a fiduciary obligation to pursue 1740. 1740 and the International were well aware that there was withdrawal liability owed to the pension fund. Notices were sent to 1575 as well as to the International before the merger agreement was signed. Thank you. I'm out of time. Thank you, Counsel. At this time, Counsel for the Appellant will reintroduce himself on the record. He has a two-minute rebuttal. Counsel, could you please work into your rebuttal that your perspective on, and maybe that's an unfair view of what's going on here, but it would be helpful to me to have your response to that. Yes, Your Honor. When I read the police brief, I mean, it struck me in the same way, the argument that Local 1740, they are alleging that it reaped the benefits of the merger 
but then it's trying to avoid liability. Well, that's not really the case for a different number of reasons. Number one, um, local 1740 did not reap any benefits because, as I mentioned before, Horizon Lines is no longer in Puerto Rico. These employees are out of a job. They get a job with Luis Ayala Colón, the other company. They become members of this union, Local 1740, because it's a closed shop. They have to, if you work for this company, you have to be part of the union. So they have, and, and the CBA, the Collective Bargaining Agreement, requires to pay union dues. So concluding that 1740 reap benefits from the merger, it's, it's, it's not accurate because it was not the result of the merger. It was the result of the fact that all these employees were out of a job and they started working for a new company, and the collective bargaining agreement requires that they have to become members of the union and start paying dues. Second, we are ignoring that this specific provision in the merger agreement that claimed, saying that the, the funds shall remain on alter and shall survive the merger, which, is, uh, which the presidents of both unions in their depositions testified, that they interpreted that and they did not believe that the funds would merge, that that they interpret this as, you know, the, the fact that the funds, each one would keep their, their funds. Uh, we are ignoring that right after this provision in the merger agreement, immediately it says, and local 70, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it says local 1575 hereby represents that the only liabilities that it has are those mentioned in the report for the Department of Labor. And, and so those are the only liabilities. And the liability of the, the withdrawal liability Everything concerning the pension fund is not there. So Local 1740 took that representation as, okay, we are assuming all liabilities, but not the fund first because that was because of this. That's what they understood, and there is an ambiguous language here. And second, because it clearly and specifically says, the merger agreement, that the only liabilities that the Local 1740 will be assuming are those mentioned in this report of the Department of Labor. Also, uh, so so... So, so when so did the withdrawal liability get discussed at all during the merger talks, and that's particularly so if the international was aware of it, as Ms. Kang said. Your Honor, thank you for asking that question because that was that's one of my points in my in my notes. To me, it's troubling that when you read Apple's brief, they quote, they 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 make statements and then they. In support of such statements, they cite portions of the appendix. And when you go and look at it, that evidence doesn't really support what they're saying. For example, and specifically concerning this issue, they quote testimony of one of the, of the members of the committee of the ILA that was uh, encouraging and trying to get the, the, the merger to happen, uh, James Paylor. They, they're claiming that the ILA and their lawyers knew about the financial liabilities of 1575. When you go to James Paylor's uh, uh, testimony, quoted by the appellee, specifically pages 181 through 182 of the appendix, Mr. Paylor clearly admits that the knowledge he gained about this situation with the withdrawal liability and the pension fund, that it was after the merger, and it's stated there. And there are a number of citations. That they're quoting, oh, they say something, and look at this, one, two, three. And when you look closely, it doesn't really support what they're saying. So, so, so that was troubling to me. So answering your question, Your Honor, concerning specifically that, there, there is no evidence on the record. There is no evidence that other than these uh, misrepresentations of the, of the testimony of the witnesses, 
demonstrating that local 1740, number one, knew about this pension withdrawal liability, and number two, that it agreed to become liable for that, or that, or number three, or that 1740 agreed that uh, the merger of the local unions would include merging those funds with an enormous liability, which they didn't even know. I mean, logic tells us if they would have known that there was a million dollars in the debt, would they agree to that? Oh, yes, we will take that, the million dollars. I mean, that didn't happen. So, so um, I don't know if I responded to your question. I think I believe I did, right? You did. And also, I wanted to just, if, just quickly to finish uh, a few points that were mentioned here. Um, You're well over your time, so just sum up very quickly. Okay, I mean, uh, all, all I want to say is that there are just so many genuine issues of fact in this case, Your Honors. I mean, it's not, it's not as clear cut as you may seem because, and the district court can, could not base only on the merger agreement. The merger agreement is not clear enough. They say that we were, we adopted a different position before the district, but it's because we both filed press motions for summary judgment and we understood that in fact, the case is so clear that there was no merger between the entities that we understood that summary judgment should have been entered in our favor because all the evidence points to that and all the witnesses that there was no merger, that it didn't include the funds, so we're not, local 1740 is not responsible for such debt. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, counsel. That concludes argument in this.